So, um, first to welcome those of you who've been in uh, the session that has instructions, and also to welcome my colleague, uh, Brian Simmons, who's been doing the instructions in the other room. Welcome. And uh, as you know, when I teach here on Tuesday nights, I am uh, really interested in your questions as a way of teaching. And uh, sometimes there are answers, but rarely. <laughs> Usually it's really whatever questions you have is a way of um, opening a new avenue of inquiry and contemplation. And uh, so whatever questions you have to offer, first of all, benefit the whole community, uh, because whatever question you ask is usually shared by other people in the room. And no questions are too basic or too beginning or too this or too that. We don't judge your questions, uh, only hope that they come from a sincere place of um, the desire to understand, which is really what practice is about. It's really about understanding more and more deeply what it means to be a human body, a, a human life, a human being in this human life and this human body. So um, we'd be really happy to hear uh, your questions, and let's see where we get with them. Hello. Hi. Um, would you mind talking about um, meditation and bringing it to um, when you're not meditating, hmm. using it throughout the world? Because I find that, I mean, when I talk to people about meditation and even what I used to think about meditation was sort of you meditate and then it, it kind of, in my practice for a couple of years, it sort of... In your practice In for... my practice for a few years, it sort of came out maybe subconsciously in a way. But lately I've been seeing more of a connection that, that there's sort of a more active letting go that I can, that I can do in life that I can actually, just a connection between meditation and letting go in when a thought arises during life, how you can sort of... How you can sort of finish the, see if you can um, finish the thought. How you can activate the same mechanism of meditation, perhaps. So what do you think is the mechanism of meditation? Um, well, there's a certain effort mm -hmm. and, I guess, awareness mm -hmm. that seems to um, happen. And you lose it when you're in activity, is that what you're saying? I found that, I guess, I didn't, I just recently made a connection and it took me like two years or something for this to click, but 
that when you're that there's there's a continuum. It's not there's mm -hmm. not a wall between. And and I've heard it said to me a thousand times. Mm. So but, so uh, let me just understand what I think you're saying. So I'll tell you what I'm understanding that you're mm -hmm. saying is that uh, you see you've been seeing meditation as one activity. Yeah. And then the rest of life as other activities. Yeah. And that there's the so you're looking for to to understand the bridge between the two. Is that? Yeah, and, and I was I was like impressed that meditation seemed to affect my life in a positive way. How is, how has it affected your life? Well, my relate in my relationships. In how my, is how is that? Um, I would say it gives me a pause uh -huh. between mostly. I mean, this is an overly simplified way of putting it, but a, a kind of pause between my response, my reaction to things. I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, is that helpful? Yeah, I mean that's that's great. But but lately I've been finding myself going through um, um, having certain things arise and I'm be beginning to go into a sort of uh, thought pattern or something or or anxiety, and I've been able to actually be very specific in letting go of it, which is the same kind of... How do you let go of it? I feel like we're... No, no. Okay. No, it's not at all. Samsara. I don't... Yeah, samsara. Oh. No, that wheel, it keeps going round and round. Yeah. But how, how do you? How do you let go? It's so hard to, to articulate. Mm-hmm. But... Um, a little more of an oomph to it. A little bit more... Of, a, of an effort in letting that, go. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Okay. Maybe not too much. <laughs> so you know, the first thing that occurred to me when you started asking a question was: Is the Tibetan, um, the Tibetan, some of the Tibetan teachings I've received in which they talk about meditation and post meditation? And it, there's a kind of trick, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a trick answer. Because there's no such thing as meditation and post-meditation. So the fact that you're sitting there with your hands in a particular position and your body in a particular posture and you maybe have your eyes closed and you're focused on a particular object, we call that meditation. Right. And then, but the, but the question is, what is meditation? Right? What is meditation? That was a question I was thinking about asking you. Okay. So we, this so morning. But this I morning. Felt like it was too. This morning. It was, a, okay. So you've been thinking about this all day. So you must have some really good answers. I'd love to hear them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so meditation and post-meditation, it's an interesting um, dichotomy. And what it reminds me of is our, is our tendency to be binary, right? That we look at our, even our states of mind as binary. And when we do that, we really cut off a flow. 
And, but you've kind of thrown a little hook in there with letting go, right? So you've really asked two questions, which is cheating. You've asked two questions. One is about the, continue, the con- continuity of meditation into, which, is a, which we sometimes mistakenly categorize as um, an activity of stillness. And then we, we distinguish that from, uh, from motion or from activity. And we think that somehow when we're in activity, because we get lost in that activity, that meditation is more difficult. But if you break down um, your understanding of meditation, perhaps that begins to give you a little bit more, a, a, a clearer picture of what it is we say we're doing when we say we're meditating. So we're meditating, I could give you an answer on what I think is the definition of meditation for me, but I'd like to hear yours. Well, I just, I think about something I've heard about the Buddha saying that we meditate in walking, sitting, standing. Beautiful. And lying down. And lying down. Let's not forget lying down. That's a tough one. Yeah, well, because we tend to think that lying down Mm -hmm. means sleeping. So that, that image is, is, very intriguing to me mm-hmm. because it, I have a and I didn't my when I started practicing I, f- I felt like it was a very sacred thing sitting and meditating every day and like my quiet time and shutting the door and, and the more I do it the, the more the, almost the, I lighten up about it yeah so so there's an embodiment to it Right, which we kind of forget because I think especially in our culture, we're a culture that lives in this box here and the rest of the body is, is kind of, you know, left to its own devices and not remembered as part of our, um, part of the whole organism. So if we start to really move our attention down into the body and we do that consistently it begins to become quite clear that meditation is not up here that meditation is the full organism it involves the full organism so we have a body we have which has sensation it's sensate and it has sensation and, um, and it is the vehicle through which their activity is carried out. And then we have a heart, which um, we metaphorically think of as holding the emotions, right? It's, a, it's still a physical part of the body, and yet we think of the heart, or we conceptualize the heart as holding emotion. And then we have a mind, where, that we think of as simply the, uh, the vehicle for thought. And we somehow are able, magically, to separate them conceptually and therefore think of them as separate, 
and perhaps are able to then cut off parts of us. So if I asked you now, everyone, to close your eyes and feel your belly, to really allow your attention to drop into the seat of your body, that first chakra. And notice the sensations there. You may notice that there is incredible activity in the belly and in that first chakra, in that first, in that seat of the physical being. And can you connect your buttocks to the seat that you're sitting on and actually feel the sensations of the body connecting and contact, connecting with and contacting the seat, the hardness of the seat or the softness of it. That's the earth element. The temperature, the fire element, the vibrations, pressure, the air element, and the fluidity and connectivity, which is the water element. So in any moment of your day, it's actually possible, without closing your eyes, to know the whole organism that consists of these elements constantly moving, shaking, vibrating, throughout the whole body, heart, and mind. And in that connection between the body, heart, and mind, meditation or post-meditation is always available. It's never away. It's never distant. It's always here. So our uh, conscious attempts at meditating are really um, pathetic because actually the body itself is always meditating. So in some ways, this effort, although effort is needed, and it, you know, so it may feel like a contradiction, it may feel like an internal contradiction, but it isn't. This effort is really to connect with that. And in any moment, it's possible to connect with it. It's possible to connect the the understanding of what is happening in the body, the heart, and the mind. And any uh, absence of understanding of any of those three centers means meditation is not present. Meditation is incomplete, and therefore it's not meditation. It's not even post-meditation. And so the letting go really has no effort because if we're if we're connecting and contacting what is actually happening in the body mind and heart of this organism there's a deep understanding of the impermanence of all things every moment comes and goes and if it comes and goes there is what do we have to do to let go because it's letting go of itself so this i know that Letting go is a really kind of fashionable injunction in our Buddhist practice. 
But to, and so maybe in the beginning, as we start to, to practice, we start to become aware of our ability to let go, and perhaps even the desirability of letting go. And as we get deeper in our practice, we begin to understand that letting go is happening all the time, because every moment is slipping away as we sit here. There is nothing that is holding on. The fact that we have a physical body makes us feel like we're earthbound. And yet there is no binding to this earth. And the way we know that is because humans are slipping away. Animals are slipping away. Everything that lives is slipping away in every moment. There is no permanence. Nothing, nothing, nothing is permanent. So the letting go is not, does not require anything of you other than joining the flow of everything that's letting go. And in that way, if you are really able to do that, and I can't tell you how to do it, I can't, but you'll know. And when you do that, meditation is happening all the time. Even at your crabbiest, right? You, can, you know you're crabby, right? It's clear when you're you know, holding on and not letting go and all of that. There is still meditation that is happening at a, le- at a deeper level. So our meditation is really the connection with that deeper level. And the notion that we're doing something when we're meditating is interesting. Even that we're letting go is an interesting idea, but it's not true. It's all letting go of itself. Thanks, Chris. I have a few things that I feel based on what he said, and, and that's how you know, I deal I deal with with this. Uh, there's a teacher here by the name of Lock Kelly, mm-hmm. and he said he told me at one point in time, you have to is dual and not not non dual. You 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 have to walk around like uh, you're marinating. Like you're what? Marinating. Marinating. Yeah. I heard, thought I heard <laughs> it, you right. It's, it's like half awake and alert, and the other one half is sort of like in a medi- meditative state. In a meditative state. So you're walking around <laughs> marinating. So, so uh, somehow the, um, that again, we're in a binary state of half alert and half meditating? Right. Interesting. Walking around like that. Okay. And dealing with stuff like that. Hope uh, you see the cars coming. Huh? <laughs> Hope you see the cars coming. You could see the car coming. Yeah. You could see it. Uh-huh. And, and you have way, you know, like very alert. Yeah. And you also at the same time very relaxed and very, you know. How are you doing with that? Huh? How are you doing with that? I'm doing very well. Good. <laughs> but the, the main thing with it that works. is my mindfulness goes away. 
Oh. And I forget to do it. But when I'm in the subway and I'm at the platform and I'm saying, and, and you know, I'm worried and thinking and the mind going here and there, I said, you know, walk around in the crowd and stuff like that. You're, you're, you're ma ma marinated. You're what? Ma marinated. Like you marinated uh, the, the meat or something like you're that. You're marinating. Oh, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. you, and you're walking. This burial, I'm not saying you're sleeping, I'm not saying you, you're meditating, I'm saying you are mindful. Mind, uh, mindful marination. Yes, as the way you are. Mm -hmm. Also, um, with, the, um, with the other thing is, I, uh, 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 you know, meditation is, we, we all know what meditation is, right? Really? Being, being aware of your thoughts and being aware of what is and letting go your thoughts and, you know, getting, uh, decreasing the agitation in your mind and being with, uh, being with what is, right? Like the raising type of things, tasting and raising and, and, and salivating and stuff like that, being, being with what is. Um, that is, uh, you know, meditate. We do it for a period of time. We sit here and, and So, meditate. Carlos. Is there a question in there? A question? Yeah. No, no, it's more like a response. <laughs> but but it, a purification, it, meditation is purification. It is, is speech, how you relate to other people, uh, being aware of what it is, and uh, mindful eating, and you know. And, Sounds busy. And, and all that stuff. So it's not only like sitting here. Okay. And, then, and another thing, I, I coordinate a group. Carlos. Yes. Is there a question in there? Uh, uh, this, this one question was asked to me. He said, uh, I am, I am, uh, uh, I asked the group, do you, do you, uh, how is your practice? Do you practice at home? And one of them said, no, I, I don't practice. I, I only practice when I'm agitated and my mind is, you know, and I'm stressed out. And um, I'm, I, I said, well, then uh, the more you practice, the less your mind will be stressed out and you'll be more peaceful. But, you know, connection to what he said. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> I have a question. Um, I fully understand and have experienced what you're talking about in terms of feeling and letting go into knowing that everything just comes and moves. Mm -hmm. I even see all the delusion. Wow, that's very fortunate. It doesn't feel fortunate. <laughs> I would love to live in denial. Really? I stopped meditating about a year and a half ago. Um, I was in the mindful-based stress reduction class, and I had been meditating faithfully, 40 minutes every day. And I started becoming enormously frightened when I meditated, except when I come here. And now I'm becoming frightened when I meditate here. I feel as though I'm totally losing myself. And, um, Somewhere, um, I heard 
somebody say here that when you finally allowed yourself to let go, then you would have real peace. I haven't found that to be the case. I find myself tremendously sad. I don't understand why. I don't see what good comes out of this. And I became addicted, not addicted, but somewhere around that time a year and a half ago, when I became afraid to meditate, I decided that all I wanted to do was have fun. And I didn't give a damn. And I don't mean destructive things. I mean fun. And I didn't want to come here anymore. I didn't want to go to retreats. I didn't want to spend any time doing any of this. There must be another stage here. <laughs> and uh, I, I just don't get it. Hmm. Hmm. Brian? <laughs> no, I'm joking. I was marinating. I was. Um, so, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to, but I just wanted to say a couple of things to to Susan. Um, first of all, it's it's very interesting to me that we come to a place where we think that life is a series of destinations. Right? You know, I'll be happy, or I'll be peaceful, or I'll get this, or I'll be that, and I'll do this, and when I do this, that will happen. And so there, so we, we have this, maybe it's a, it's a kind of hope that somehow if we do this, we will achieve that or we will attain that. And yet everything that Every part of life is pointing to us that we are in process. That there's no such thing as, there's only one destination. And I think everybody can guess what that is, right? One destination to life. Everything else are kind of um, stops along the way, or maybe not even stops, but just stages along the way. And that somehow peace means that life kind of settles down into a, you know, kind of peaceful, lovely, lyrical, melodic rhythm that is pleasant. Anybody have a life like that? I want to know you. We all know I think most of us know, if not all of us, that we learn the most when there are difficulties. And it doesn't mean it's pleasant. And it doesn't mean we're kind of, you know, just hoping for difficulties so we'll learn. But that it's naturally what happens. Being alive in a human body is a difficult thing. And I think what the practice is pointing to is not so much that we will escape that, or transcend it, I think, is a more common word that's used, but that there is a way in which, with an, with an understanding of uh, a deeper and deeper growing understanding of what it means to be human, that the difficulties of life can be met with wisdom and compassion rather than 
with depression and um, aversion. And if, but it doesn't mean that if you're feeling aversion that it's somehow wrong or, or that you're wrong or that life is wrong or that the practice is wrong but that there is a continuum of life where we have all of these feelings and um, responses and reactions to what's happening. And how do we transform all of the ways in which we create suffering in our lives, which in the teachings it's the clinging mind of loving what's pleasant, hating what's unpleasant, and being completely oblivious to what is neutral. How do we begin to practice that so that the suffering is not, so that the difficulties, the, the joys and the sorrows are not accompanied by aversion, or the, the sorrows are not accompanied by aversion, and the joys are not accompanied by desire for more but that when the joys arise, we can fully appreciate them, fully live in them, and completely embody them. And the same for the suffering. That we understand there is difficulty, there is uh, what we would maybe prefer not to have, but there's a wisdom and compassion that can accompany it. That if not eliminating completely, at least lessens our suffering. So if we're in a period, I happen to be in a period in this, this last two years that's really difficult, right? And I'm surprised I'm even sitting here. It's been so difficult. And yet, lightness comes when we understand that everything is a journey. And life is that. It's not that or that. It's a kind of sine wave of here it is now. This is what's here now. This is what's here now. How am I going to respond? How am I going to respond? How am I going to respond? So that the idea that this is good, this is not good, I like this, I don't want that, is something that may arise, but doesn't have to be clung to. Yes, the idea that, oh, I love this because I'm so happy and everything's going my way, oh, this is really great, should be accompanied by the understanding that this is just part of the journey. Similarly, the loss and the death and the grief and the um, humiliation and Everything that happens that we don't like is also part of the journey. And what are we going to learn from it? And how do we grow from it? So that instead of a kind of self-pity about, oh, why is this happening? It shouldn't be happening. I'd prefer it not to be happening. All of that may arise, but it doesn't have to become who we are we can still live through it. We can still have the strength and the wisdom and compassion to live through all of that because it's part of the package. It's part of the journey. You know, and we could get into deeper things about karma and all of that. We don't have a whole hell of a lot of time to do that tonight. 
But can you widen your lens, broaden your picture, see it as a, a, a painting that is continually being painted, that your life is that. It's a work of art that is always, always in process. What, whatever state or stage you're at, it's part of the process. It's not a destination. You were going to say something. I think you covered it. I don't think there's... Honestly, I mean, I, I don't know if there's any... That, yeah, how you said, feel. You've touched on everything, I think. I'm looking for new destinations all the time. Yeah. And, and when I find them... You think, oh, that's it, now I've done it. Well, now I, now I have something to work towards. Yeah. To be again, a new yeah. story about me. Mm-hmm. And as I move toward it, I think, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. I'm done with this. So what... I, I, everything you said is... Get up and do it again. Amen. Amen. I think Jackson Brown said that. Including the good part of saying, this, I do that. But it's just, you know... It gets really hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we can acknowledge that too. Yeah. This too. Is. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Gina. Hey. I brought my mom again. Oh, <laughs> hi. Hi, mom. Um, I wanted to just a, make a comment to say that I finally went to the people of Polish Sangha uh, and Allies, the POC and Allies uh, Sangha last week here, and it was great um, and um, really helped me um, with some of the stuff that I have been trying to figure out how I can dialogue better with and live with and be with and share, including the sangha that you had here, I want to say about two months ago, um, on a Tuesday night that addressed some of the um, issues about racial, uh, you know, injustice in our society. And I've read Radical Dharma and I've seen Reverend Angel Kira Williams speak a couple of times. Um, and the book that she wrote with Lama Rod Owens, um, he talks about uh, how we need to have messy conversations about these things, whatever they are, those things, whatever our implicit biases are. And I just kind of, I, you know, I have been feeling really mm, helpless, hopeless, um, I don't know. But after coming to the POC, after reading all those things and going to those talks, but after coming to the POC and Allied Sangha, I felt great. So my question is, do you have any suggestions on how to start those kind of quote-unquote messy conversations? Do you know what I mean by the messy conversation? Mm. Yeah, okay. So since you started the POC Sangha, um, because I, I know the things that happen in my head sometimes that are ugly, and I shared it in one of the Monday sits here, for example, and it opened up to a small group, but I just feel like there's still so much shame and judgment around whatever it is that pops up. I don't know if it's... So, I submit to you. Any suggestions for starting the messy <laughs> conversation about race and injustice? <laughs> if that's perhaps Let's what see. we're supposed to be doing as Twelve. part of the healing. Twelve minutes, okay. So, you know, so psychiatrists and therapists say that there's this um, phenomenon, which is the hand on the doorknob, right? That the client or the patient always asks the the most um, pressing and difficult question Sorry. when the hand is on the doorknob. <laughs> on the way out, that is, not on the way in. 
So, you know, we know that um, we are in a seminal moment in, I think, not only in American culture, but in our global community, that um, things appear to be at a really kind of um, high temperature with all of the ways in which uh, the world is shifting and changing and the complexion of the world is shifting and changing and all of our segregated societies, our European societies, our Asian societies, our African societies, and America, which is supposed to be the melting pot, um, have all kind of been able to hold back the tide of this moment, which is a moment in which, uh, because of wars and um, global issues, immigration is worldwide, and um, communities that felt that were monolithic in their ethnicity and their race, etc., are no longer so. So I think it's not just America, although we have a special history in America, given the venality and the um, institutionalization of slavery. I come from Jamaica, which is a culture in which we've, races have mixed for many generations. So it's interesting for me to be in, in America where it's not the case, where there really has been segregation, de facto segregation, even though there has been de jure integration. This makes it really difficult on a person, it, it makes it difficult on a, um, on, a, on a communal level, it makes it difficult on a federal level, it makes it difficult in a local, on, a, on local levels. So the, the tendency is to want to have a destination in which we all understand each other and we're all living together and everything's great. It's not going to happen that simply. It's a journey again, right? And so there are so many ways in which, if you're white in this culture, you have been protected from uh, the suffering of the community of color. And now there is a kind of demand that that layer of protection be removed so that the scales on the eyes can also fall away. And for the community of color, there is a new urgency in being seen and that the oppression and prejudice and bias become conscious rather than hidden and unconscious. It's been, uh, I, think, I think slavery, I read the other day, I don't know if it's true, but I read the other day that actually it started in the 1600s here. So we're talking about 400, 500, four, between four and 500 years of an institutionalized system. So the idea that that institutionalized system can be shifted in a short time, and it's a really short time, even if we look at 
the civil rights era in the 1960s, that's just 50 years. It's a really short time compared to the, the, the duration of the history of slavery and oppression and all of the results of it. So for me, I think that there are two things that must happen. One is that it must be spoken. And the other is that it also must be met with patience. And the two may feel at odds, right? That there is an urgency for change, an urgent need for change. And at the same time, we understand any of us who, who work in systems know that systems resist change. And power does not give itself up easily. It will resist forever. And it's not classically a force that is paired with love. Power. One of my very favorite sayings from Martin Luther King's, uh, there's a beautiful book, if anybody's interested, in Martin Luther King's speeches called Strength to Love. And in, in one of his speeches, he talks about power and love. And he says that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. And when we are working with these kinds of systemic, dug-in patterns, first understanding must come. If we try to shift it or change it without deeply understanding the nature of what is happening and what is true, we will wind up destroying ourselves. But much of the time, because the oppression is, the, the need for the oppression to end is so urgent, it feels like patience is the last thing that should be cultivated. And in some ways it feels very radical to request patience. But if we don't understand the nature of power and how it usually isn't paired with love, and how it is reckless and abusive, and how it digs itself in, and it doesn't give itself up easily. If we don't understand that, it will erupt in violence. So your question, this is a really long way of answering your question, which is how do you talk about it? And I think you talk about it with some authenticity from your own personal experience, as well as from your wisdom and from your understanding and the understanding of history, not just what's happening now. Because what's happening now is a total, is, is, is a culmination of what has happened for the last four or five hundred years. And so if we try to fix something without understanding its roots and how it got here, we will make a mess. That's true in a society, it's true in an organization, it's true in our personal lives. On all levels, if we don't understand our history, we don't know how to meet it. So the first thing is to understand really deeply. And the second is if you're going to speak it and speak your understanding, to do so with authenticity and courage. 
I brought um, tonight a, a, a this is a, one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Sankara. I would like to leave behind me the conviction that if we maintain a certain amount of caution and organization, we deserve victory. Caution and organization. You cannot carry out fundamental change without a certain amount of madness. In this case, it comes from nonconformity. The courage to turn your back on the old formulas, the courage to invent the future. It took the madmen of yesterday for us to be able to act with extreme clarity today. I want to be one of those madmen. We must dare to invent the future. So we look at the past, we understand it, and the invention of the future has a little bit of madness to it. But that madness has real clarity in what it is we want to embody first. It's not just about the flapping of the gums. It's what do we embody so that who, when, someone, when we speak to someone, we are communicating a whole person not just words or thoughts or ideas, but the mind, the heart, and the body. And if we can do that, in any, whether we're talking about racism and meeting it and trying to contribute to our part or our small contribution for change, in racism or in any other system or any other a difficulty or problem, can we do so with dignity, with authenticity, with wisdom, and most importantly, with compassion and love? So what we say or how we say it verbally is the least of your problems, because there's really not much more to be said. I think the events of the last few years have really kind of said what needs to be said. How are we now with each other? How are you with a white person who's just done something re or said something really racist and is totally oblivious about it? Can you meet that with compassion? Can you meet it with kindness? And can you meet it with the madness of stating your truth, which sometimes is risky, can you do it? And what does it take to do it? It takes a real presence that has a combination of all of those qualities. Not one can be missing, or the message will get lost. This is a really important moment in the history of the world, not just America. Because racism and uh, other phobia is rampant. We make other of just about everybody outside this bag of skin. And can we first start to understand it and make that our main, uh, make it our main goal to approach the entire world as if it was inside this bag of skin? This bag of skin is not the, is not the end of who we are. Enough. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for your practice.
thank you for listening. And I love you. Good night. May the practice that we have done together, the contemplations, our understanding that has maybe grown just a little, our kindness and compassion and wisdom that we develop from practicing and reflecting and contemplating can be shared with the whole world. And so we dedicate all of the merits of our practice and the goodness field of goodness that it creates are dedicated to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being, and the awakening of all beings everywhere, without exception. And we send our wishes for the safety, peace and happiness, health, and freedom from suffering of all beings everywhere, without exception. Thank you. Good night.